Welcome to Millennium Live, the official podcast of the Millennium Alliance. Well, everybody, welcome back to another edition of Millennium Live, the more and more famous, ever-growing Millennium Alliance podcast. Uh, I think everybody's in for a real treat today. A little bit different of an interview that I usually do, partly because I know the person that we're interviewing very well, someone that I went to college with and I've kept a close relationship with over the years. I can say, because I really mean it, one of my favorite people walking this planet Some people may know the brand that he founded with his partner, which we're going to talk about a lot on this particular podcast. This is a person who is an entrepreneur in every sense of the world, uh, in every sense of the word, excuse me, and is is someone who's inspiring to me and is building a brand that it seems like almost week to week is doing something very revolutionary. The person I'm speaking of is Mark Mastrangea. Social media channels is Mark Brazil. He and his partner, Jeff Cole, are the founder of a great organization called Iconic. Just so everybody knows, if you're not familiar with Iconic, Iconic is a Los Angeles-born brand putting a new spin on the business of inspiring others through art, embodying popular culture, exclusive collections that exist to motivate in a way that's entirely their own. Whether you're working out of a cubicle or hustling with an ocean view, they've created hundreds of pieces to motivate you through your mornings, your days, and your nights. Iconic started out for Mark and Jeff as a passion project in 2016. Iconic is now one of the fastest growing digital art companies in the whole world. Their artwork displays in thousands of homes and office spaces. They are partnered up with some really great, great names and entrepreneurs, including Gary Vaynerchuk and Scooter Braun. They have licensing rights with the NBA, Muhammad Ali, Marilyn Monroe, and many others. And their mission is producing affordable, high-quality canvas art that's guaranteed to make you sit up straight, put your head down, and most importantly, go follow your passion. So Mark, as I mentioned earlier, we went to college together. We were in the same fraternity, and for people that know me well, know that I loved my college and I loved my fraternity. I had a big reason or a big part to play for Mark in joining our fraternity with someone else, which I know we're going to talk about. But what I want to spend time focusing on today is definitely I want to get into Iconic, what they've done, what they're doing, and what their plan is for the future. Because again, if you're not familiar with them, they're going to be a brand that you're going to hear about for years to come. Mark is a pure, 100%, always has been entrepreneur, and I want the listeners today, especially in the CMO and CEO CEO community, to get an understanding of where Mark is from, why he always knew he was going to be an entrepreneur, and why he was always confident in himself that he was gonna he was gonna succeed and do great things in his life. So, with all that said, Mark, welcome to the podcast. It is great to be with you, brother. Sobel, I love you more than anything. You're one of my favorite people as well. And uh, to this day, I mean, I've met a lot of people in a lot of places, and I really believe that you're one of the best leaders I've ever met. So I appreciate you having me on. And I took a a quick look at some of your past guests and I most definitely think I'm going to bring some different stuff to the table. So I'm super excited. Well, I appreciate that, bud. So Mark, before we get into Iconic, before we get into college, um, because I want to talk more about college specifically, because I'm not stunned with what you're doing. One of the very few actually in your group of friends, I'm sure they're going to be watching and listening to this podcast. Well, I gave, I gave them a heads up today. I told them that, that to look out for the episode with you. But the reason I'm not stunned is because I got to know you more on a personal level. And I and for our listeners, Mark lived up college in, in every sense of the word. He was the, I think you were the social chair one year of the fraternity. You were always down to have a party and you were always down to have a good time. And I took from that, I was always interested in how people were always drawn to you, which is why I say that I'm not surprised with what you're doing and what I think you're going to be achieving in the near term. But I want you to take us through before college, because 
You're a New York guy from Long Island. You were an athlete in high school. You were a soccer player. But walk us through kind of when you were a young, if you can, when you were a young adolescent, high school years, you know, what your family dynamic was like, what was important to you. And did you did you then have any thought about what you wanted to achieve later in your life? Like kind of to walk, walk me through what your early years were like. Yeah, uh, grew up super blessed, great family, uh, upper middle class in Long Island. My father worked on Wall Street for 40 plus years, woke up at, you know, 6 a.m. every single day, never took off. My mom loved her more than anything. She was a speech pathologist, very smart woman, very likable. I think I got my workout from my father and then my mom's kind of personality from my mother. And then my sister is about 15 months older than me, was a year older than me in high school and um, very, very big soccer players growing up. So um, my mom was always the soccer mom. She was very much a part of my life. And we were traveling all the time. I wasn't going to school on Fridays, probably 30% of the time from about seventh grade to 11th grade, um, just because I was always traveling for soccer. And uh, I think if you asked you know, a ton of people about me, they'd say that I treat everybody the same. And um, yeah, I would say I was just like kind of a troublemaker, always curious. To this day, I still don't believe how I you know, took the test for ADD and I didn't have ADD, but I'm definitely <laughs> someone that's, that's super wired. And yeah, I was a big, big soccer player. My sister was a big soccer player growing up. And I think for me, soccer kind of dictated my whole life. And really, I found out who I was through soccer. And you know, I was on a decorated club team growing up. We were nationally ranked. For those that don't know, I'm Brazilian and Brazilian soccer players kind of had this connotation where they're super talented, but they don't work hard. And going in kind of through to my sophomore year in high school, I was super talented on the club side, but for my high school team, I just, for whatever reason, didn't put in the work. And my sophomore year, my three buddies who were athletic, but not soccer players, they got, went up to varsity. I stayed back on JV. So I kind of got a slap in the face then. And then the following year, my junior year, I went to Brazil for two weeks for my cousin's wedding. My coach was very mad at me. So I basically was a nobody my junior year. And I think that summer was when I discovered who I was. I woke up one morning, my mom would always make me scrambled eggs and bagels for breakfast. We'd sit and have breakfast together. I looked in a lo local newspaper, Newsday, and they had this players to watch list. And it was a pretty big list. People from my own team were on that list and people that I annihilated on the club scene were on that list. And something happened that day at that breakfast table where I basically was just like, fuck this shit. I'm about to go into a whole other mode. And I was never a big cardio guy, but starting that day, I ran every single day, no days off, four or five miles a day. And I just, I'd be running at two o'clock in the morning. I remember my friends used to go to Taco Bell at, uh, after, at the end of the night at two o'clock in the morning. And some of my best friends could tell you that they would see me sometimes running in the middle of the night by them. And basically I went from not starting to then going into my senior year, about two weeks before the season, the coach Knew I was very talented, didn't have a good relationship. Why not a good relationship with the coach? He just thought I was a prima donna and he knew that there was another level and I just didn't put in the work. Quite frankly, to this day, I, I really put it on myself. But that summer, I really put in the work. And then two weeks before the season, we had like our meetings before the season. And he was like, Mark, don't make me regret this, but I'm going to make you the captain of the team and we're going to go as far as you could, you're going to take us. Our team went from being unranked in the second conference. And I took the team as far as, as it had ever gone in school history that season. Got a ton of different, different honors, a bunch of different college scholarships. 
yeah, it was just then where I really realized during that season where I was like, wow, like if I put my, you know, my focus and my, my effort into something, I can really achieve anything. After the season, they have kind of like the college showcases. Everyone was like, where the fuck did this kid come from? Yeah. So yeah, that's when I really kind of was kind of like the first chapter in my life where I figured out who I was. And I always kind of look at my life in like different trenches. And I think that was kind of the first trench. And that's what I find out from a, from a work ethic perspective. And I think secondly, knowing and understanding how important it is to treat people right. You know, I was something called battle of the classes captain every single year um, from freshman through my senior year. I was nominated for homecoming king. And it was all because I was always just the nice guy to everybody. Mm-hmm. And I was just always the fun, happy guy. You know, you're in the fraternity with me. I was, yeah. you know, just the guy that, that rallied people and people got behind me. So just learning how to be socially. And then from a work ethic perspective, the work you put in, that's how you get results. So there was that. And then um, I was deciding between different schools to go to college for, to play soccer. Um, and ultimately I decided University of Delaware to play there. Long story short, I'm a New York guy and um, didn't really like the guys from Delaware and Philadelphia. Yeah. It didn't work out for me. So I decided to quit the team. And then I guess we could go into the chapter with you. We're going to get, we're going to get to sophomore year when you, when you join the fraternity. I'm curious though, because you mentioned your dad's work ethic and we've talked about this before that your dad was just, he had crazy work ethic, never took a day off, was pedal to the metal always. Did did your parents, when it came to sports or even school, were they ever like type of parents that pushed you or was it very much that you kind of discovered that inner fire that you, that you said you got when you saw that list and in your junior year of high school, did that come just something within or did you, did you have any pushing from either of your parents? I love how my parents parented me outside of a couple small caveats that I'm going to do whenever I have kids. They empowered me to find myself on my own and almost the same thing that I do in business, go fast, break shit, figure it out, experiences over everything. My mom, you know, ever since I first got a cell phone, she would always say, I believe in you. I literally have believe tattooed on my right yeah. leg. And then, and then my mom's middle name is Rose tattooed on my other leg. So they just always defended me, you know, believed in me. And um, my father, you know, to this day, it's so weird for people listening. You're not, you can't see me. My dad's five, six, I'm six, one. I don't know how to shut the fuck up. He's quiet. He never drank. <laughs> he never drinks. He never smoked. I don't do that anymore, but I used to be a big party animal. Sure. Uh, very risk averse. I would go jump off a cliff without a, without a bungee cord right now. So completely different humans, but he just embedded in me. He let, he let what he did do the talking. Yes. He was just literally like this guy when he retired, it was like, he had like no days off. Like I, I don't, I don't come from the, the corporate world. So I don't know how that works, but like he had like years worth of vacation days stacked up. So it was just, he just taught me and he's, uh, his parents, my grandparents are Brazilian immigrants. They had nine different kids. So he grew up in something where you had to earn, you know, basically like food at the table, hypothetically. He sacrificed anything and everything just to put me in a, in a position where I can afford to fuck up. Like yeah. we'll get into college, but like my parents pay for my college. That's a blessing. You know, I went to school for five years, you know, not everyone would do that. So yep. yeah, my father doesn't say much, but he's a savage from another planet. And then my mom is just like the sweetest human of all time. Like I love her more than anything. When you got to Delaware, your freshman year, was it a hard decision to quit the soccer team? No. What happened there? Because for me, it's, it's one of two things. I always say, um, you know, the, the true definition of success is doing what you want with who you want, when you want. And I was getting a little burnt out from soccer. 
And I ultimately didn't even like the guys, didn't like the coach. And I was like, hey, what am I doing here? And I think that my, my freshman year, ironically enough, it was my transition from athlete. And then I discovered very fast entrepreneurship. So my freshman year was the year of, I'll get into that story of how I discovered and found out about entrepreneurship. Um, And then obviously that bridged into eventually doing a fraternity, but I am so happy I quit that team because like I, 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 I'm picturing in my head, the guys on the team, like, I don't want to say any of the names. You'll probably actually recognize some of the names, but let's just say they're probably not doing much. I'll leave it at that. I'm glad you brought up the bridge to entrepreneurship because, you know, I remember you kind of like me, we did okay in school, but we weren't like what, when I think back to my college experience, I remember a couple of professors that had a profound impact on me. And I remember some classes that I took that were, that, that, that I enjoyed, but like you weren't into the school aspect of school. Um, even though, and I say that, I say that because when I was talking earlier in this discussion, even though you didn't really care that much about school per se, not surprised in what you've achieved so far. And as a betting person, I, I know what you're going to achieve in the, in the future, the reason I say this is because when we went to school, different than it is now, even what was it? We, we graduated 13, 14 years ago. I always remember that if you didn't get good grades or you weren't part like in the fraternity, you weren't one of the kids that that had like good marks at school or this and that, you know, people doubted you, you know, and I think me yeah. and you kind of fall into that category where I had a below a 3.0 GPA and I really never cared to, to study much. And I just kind of got through school just to, as, as best as I possibly could, doing the bare minimum that I could. I think times have changed now where, first of all, a lot of people are successful don't even go to college. And yeah. a lot of people that went to college that weren't great students have become very successful in their own right. So I'm curious, when did the wheel start to turn where you kind of developed this entrepreneurial brain? First off, I'm just so curious. I had a 2.1 GPA, the lowest GPA you needed to actually graduate. So I'm so curious. <laughs> Like if I went back now, if I could get a 4.0, I assume I can. Quite frankly, I wouldn't have learned much. The one class that I wish I learned um, was more uh, finance stuff like Microsoft Excel and stuff. I just remember how I discovered entrepreneurship. It's like, I just remember it's so crisp. So first there was freshman orientation. I'm sitting there. I meet my, my then freshman roommate. Uh, his name was Trevor Costello. He was from Lower Delaware, a football player. And we're sitting there. This guy has dip in his mouth. He loves to drink. And they're talking about these kind of three strikes and you're out. And strikes can mean yeah. you know, anything, open container, noise, noise violations. violations. Yeah, yeah. And I'm listening and I'm like, I grew up in a town that was a mix between wealthy people and then lower class. So I was really good at understanding the dichotomy of how to basically dance the line. So they're like, okay, three strikes, you're out. And I'm like, okay, I don't even have to worry about strikes until I at least get one strike. Then I go to you know, our dorm with Trevor and we're talking, we're catching up. And he finds out that I have a fake ID. I remember his name was Jason Miller from Woodbury. And then Trevor had this big pickup truck. I go down the hall to these two girls and they're like, yo, can you get us beer? And I'm like, yeah, of course. So they gave me 40 bucks. And at that time I grew up drinking like Bud Light where it was like $30 or $25 for a 30 pack. I go to the store with Trevor and I discover this new beer um, for people listening. Milwaukee's Beast Light, Natty Ice, Natty Light. (laughs) And it was like, six bucks. So I'm like, fuck it, let's try. So I get it. So I go back and I give them that and I go to give them back $34 and they're like, keep it. I'm like, what? They're like, keep it. And then literally I could say to this day, walking back from their room to my room is when I became an entrepreneur. No one wants to take the risk to get the strikes with the fake ID. I just made 34 bucks on one fucking 30 pack. 
Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm about to fuck shit up. So then, what, <laughs> so then what did I do? I went to my next door neighbors. I went to the whole entire first floor. I went to the second floor. I went to the third floor. I went to the fourth floor. Was this in Dickinson? This was in Dickinson and Rodney. I made like a mini menu where it was like marked up where I would mark the prices up. And then I had all of these soccer duffel bags from all of the, the club teams that I played growing up. And I remember having to call my mom and being like, mom, I need you to ship me all of my soccer duffel bags. And she's like, for what, honey? I was like, don't worry about it. I just need my soccer bags. And it got to a point where I literally, I mitigated all my risk where I didn't even go in the car and I would hire people and I'd pay them like 20 bucks to go do the liquor runs for me. And then I would make deals with the liquor places where they'd give me like promotional t-shirts and promotional pool floaties. And then I'd give like my preferred custom, like little pool floaties and shit. I mean, I was making a couple thousand dollars a night. It was, it was pretty crazy. And then I remember, you're going to remember these names too, actually, is I uh, was a big beer pong player in high school, super competitive with beer pong. And um, I, I was in the dorm room with Trevor and then we ripped down the two closet doors and we had a beer pong tournament, which Lindsay Zucker and Gary Goldstein were in that sure. room. And the RA knocked on the door, the resident advisor, and basically came in and everyone hit all the beer. And then Gary Goldstein had a red cup in front of his right foot. And then we all got popped for strikes. Um, all the girls got strikes. Lindsay Zucker got a strike. Yeah. Um, and then my, they knew, they knew what I was doing with the alcohol ring. And they basically told me without telling me like, yo, you're going to get kicked out of school if you don't stop this like little liquor thing that you're doing. So yeah. What was the charge you think you were getting from it? Was the, was the fact that you were making money? Was it the fact that you were, you were creating kind of like this mini business? You mean what, what got me going? What got me excited? Yeah. Like what got you excited about that whole, that whole experience? My favorite thing just in life and in business with humans and business is just figuring out the best way to get it done from, from an efficiency standpoint, a happiness standpoint, an emotional standpoint. And it was just, you know, when I figured out, you know, the menu, when I figured out the sweet spot of what the upsell is, when I figured out when I got these promotional items, when I, I mean, dude, it's so crazy. I look back, like I figured out the logistics, you yeah. know, go, go around the left end of the building, not the right end of the building. I figured out who I could trust to do it, who I couldn't trust, figuring out, how many handles of vodka can fit in the Merrick Storm duffel bag versus the East Meadow Mighty's duffel bag. Like it just became an obsession to me on figuring out how to do something as effective as possible. It's so crazy, man. Cause I just, I mean, I was in high school, I was like cheating on tests. I didn't give a shit about school ever. And like, it was then where I then discovered my passion for reading. I was never a reader. And then I remember I read um, Art of the Start by Guy Kawasaki. Like that was yeah. one, that was, that was He's one the Apple books. guy, right? Yeah, it was one of the first books um, about how to like to do PowerPoint presentations and how to pitch people your ideas. I mean, dude, I just did not care about school at all. I mean, there would be, it's a joke because there would be literally be times where I would not go to class, but I would be reading a book. So yeah. I would literally be learning what I wanted to learn and not go to class. So what was, were, were you cognizant, like in your mind, were you cognizant of the fact that you didn't need good grades to launch you in a good spot post-college? Or were you ever anxious about the fact that you didn't do well in school or you didn't care about school? Or were you very sure in, in yourself? And what, when did you start th- figuring out what you were going to do post-college? I didn't at all. I had no plan, no nothing. I just knew. Did that worry you? No, because it's actually one of our pieces. One of my favorite things is like, I just always knew that winners win and losers lose. 
ever since the beginning, I found out a way to win in what I was doing. And I ultimately knew that was one thing my father always said to me is son, you have a, an innate skill on how to sell. And he's like, you'll always have a job and be able to do whatever you want to do because you know how to sell. And I think that, you know, people don't do business with other businesses. People do business with other people. And I had a, a, a big enough and long enough sample set to know that I knew how to create great relationships and mutually beneficial relationships. So um, there definitely was some foggy times of drinking a lot of alcohol and having a lot of fun. I mean, it's hysterical to this day. I was making more money in college through my hustles than I did until I was 29 or 30 years old, which is wow. mind blowing to think. So I was like, hey, I know how to build relationships. I know how to sell. I know how to make money. Let's have as much fun as possible in college and I'll kind of figure it out later. Um, that's not to say that at the end of college, I wasn't like, okay, I got to figure this out. But I mean, there was first, there was that. I was then the social chair of the fraternity, um, which we can get into, which I started well, running. I, want, I wanted to ask you, I, I feel like for me personally, my experience as president of the fraternity really helped me a lot. Like I did that stuff because I wanted to. I didn't do that stuff because someone said, yo, go take a leadership position in the fraternity because it's going to help you later in life. I did it for the purest reasons possible. And, you know, I know you did too as well with the stuff that you did, whether in leadership as, you know, when you were running social activities or just in general, being just a, a guy that tried to make the fraternity as good as possible. Do you contribute any part of your success to any particular experience or experience of the fraternity in general? A hundred percent. Me too. I, again, kind of looking at the chapters of my life, it's crazy to think like the fraternity was one of the most integral things I've ever done my whole entire life. You know, the fact that I still remember it to foster and maintain among its sons a spirit of fraternity, a spirit of <laughs> still maintain the hearts of its sons. Like the fact that I still remember that is, crazy. Is, is mind-blowing. I was saying before, before I came into the podcast to some of my team, like, it's impressive. Like you were the president, I was social chair. To be able to manage a bunch of hooligans from yeah. all over the world, different personalities, and to stay out of trouble. And ultimately, yes. you, were, you, you were running a business as the president. Like you had like a a P&L and stuff. So <laughs> well, um, I had a good, I had a good treasurer in Fishkind. Thank God. That, that is a good one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, dude, I just, I just learned more about personalities. Like I think that, you know, we'll get later into my life, but like ultimately I came from a pretty diverse background, but like, you know, I had never met a kid from Delaware. I had never met a guy like, you know, Scott Elliman. I never met a guy like you. I, yeah. I had never met all these people. So then you start meeting all these people and whether when they go through the pledge process, like you really start understanding and learning and you start seeing, you know, different uh, sociological tendencies of how people react to different things. And you just, it's like this massive eight week case study that you get twice a year. And it's just, you just learn so much about so many different things. I, I highly recommend it for anybody. And then socially, every single person in my pledge class, like, again, we don't need to get into details, but it was a pretty rigorous uh, process we had. I hold a special bond with, you know, I think it was 13 of us. Like I'm still close with half them, even down to, you know, the Tabushes and the Gindis of the world. I don't know if they're listening, but if I ever saw those guys, I'd fucking give them a hug and a kiss. Like I love those guys. So what I think was great about our fraternity, because I think a lot of people who never took part in Greek life at college think that people join fraternities that are like themselves, you know, which is, which is kind of a fair criticism or fair analysis because a lot of fraternities, 
Well, I didn't. I didn't. No, no, I agree. The fraternities and sororities generally bring in like-minded people who look alike. What was interesting about our fraternity, even though it's nationally "quote unquote" Jewish, it was very diverse. We had we had. I was the start. Uh, I was the start. I was the half Jew that brought in the renegades. Well, and and I was at your bar mitzvah <laughs> in Israel, coincidentally enough, um, which I remember. I remember very vividly. But what 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 was great about our fraternity? It was literally a microcosm almost of the world, or at least at least America in the sense where you had people with money, people who didn't have a lot of money, you had people that were traditional, what you would think of fraternity guys that dressed well, and you know, were athletic. And then you had kids that came from parts of the country or, or came from grew, grew up in backgrounds where they didn't look like they'd be anywhere near a traditional fraternity and trying to manage that and deal with that. I didn't realize at the time for me, but thinking about it now it was really challenging because in college, especially when hormones are going crazy and people want to be heard and people want to have a good time, there's a lot that you have to figure out how to manage depending on what on what you want to do. And I just, I always go back to that point in my life and I'm just like, there was so much good that came out of it. So much that that I, I was able to learn that helped me later, not just in business, but just, just like you said before, dealing with people, right? Dealing with people to me is the most critical skill set or the most critical thing in life, in business, in anything, if you want to have some type of success in, what, in whatever it is you do. So you were the guy in college that always wanted everybody to have a good time. You were always down to organize and organize for anybody, whether it was related to a fraternity activity or fraternity or an activity with, with roommates. Um, all you cared about was people having fun. And you were a guy that people were just very much drawn to. Did you, did you know in college, like you mentioned that your dad said it to you, that like you could sell and people people trusted you and people liked you, but did you, did you realize how, how that could be such a valuable asset to you once you got out of college? I did. Yeah. I knew it from the beginning because I saw it in different levels. I saw being able to rally micro groups in classrooms and doing projects to, to soccer teams, to battle of the classes, to fraternities, to different people on my floor. Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of layered in with me starting to read. I'm an all, all or nothing type guy. So when I yep. started reading, I started reading. Like I've, I'm a, a pretty avid reader. Um, now it's also just like consuming stuff on the internet, like videos and such. But I could read a situation, what it looked like without me and then with me. I mean, I know what the, the Greek week looked like before I was social chair and then what yeah. it looked like when I was social chair. Sure. And yeah, I, I think what it also taught me is um, producing events is something, events are like a, a mini business, especially with that many people. I think producing events really taught me um, management and delegation, the attention to detail and understanding numbers, um, putting on a bus trip to Baltimore, there's a lot that goes on. Mm-hmm. You're, you're dealing with, you know, the vendors for the buses and there's X amount of real estate. And then you have to cut the deal with the bar. Give me X amount of time for open bar. What's my kickback? You know, there's just a lot of things that go into it. So and that's without um, dealing with the students, which is the biggest pain in the ass. Yeah. Luckily, we had a, an arsenal of pledges that were our like uh, <laughs> many assistants that could go around and print the tickets and send them out. But the fraternity was one of the best decisions I ever made. And that just the fraternity spiraled into me doing bus trips. And then I had my own clothing company where we sold at the five and dime. And I just kept spiraling off kind of these mini businesses. Ultimately, you know, in life, there is, I think it's kind of this, this up, down, up where it's like, I think first you need to become a generalist. You need to really understand a lot of things, try a lot of things, see what you're passionate about. And you need to kind of zone in and become a specialist at something so you can really provide value to an organization or a human or whatever it is. And then ultimately, as you scale, you're always going to have that one core specialty, but you need to, again, kind of 
become a generalist and be able to understand more things to build. So in college, I was just like the mat, like I just did so much shit, man. I was like a professional poker player for a year. Remember when we played poker every single day for like I a do. year? Like people don't even know that. Like I played like a couple of weeks ago in Vegas and my friends were like, you play poker? I'm like, you don't even know how much, <laughs> how much poker I played. I used to read all those, uh, what was that guy? Al Harrington, all those books. Sure. And Harrington books. But yeah, I just think that, you know, ultimately if you try a lot of things early through and through, I was just a hustler that could figure out problems. That's what it came down to. So this, now this is the part of your life that I don't know much about because even though we're the same age, fortunately for you, you got to do a fifth year at college, which at the time people may have said, oh, you know, you know, could could be, could be talking shit to you about doing a fifth year, but in retrospect, it, it probably, you know, I think everybody wishes they could do an extra year of college. Talk to me about what happened when you graduated college, because that's the part of your life. I know what you're doing now, and I know who you were in college, right? But you graduate from Delaware. What happened next? I was the biggest failure in every sense of the word by any type of conservative human that had a, a corporate job for the foreseeable future. So I go back. I have a decent amount of money because I stacked money during school. I go home, spend some time with my family. And the first thing you did was you went back to Long Island. Go back to Long Island. Question for you, though. Did any part of your last year at college, did you even try to get a traditional job or did you apply to work anywhere like in New York City, for example? No. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on here, but I smoked a lot of weed, played a lot of uh, NBA 2K8 with John John Weidtraub. Um, And ironically, I was such a weird human. And I had a girlfriend at the time for three years that I thought I was going to marry like a crazy person. But yeah, then I go back home and I start thinking like, hey, what's this business I'm going to start next? I read all these books. I have experience. But then I get a call from my best friend from the fraternity, someone you know very well, Will Dean. And he's mm-hmm. like, no, man, he's living in California, which at that point, California was like this like cool, sunny place. I'm from New York. I'm living in what, like- what, Around what time of the period was this? What, like what month? I drained my money. and was hanging out for a minute um, and spending time with my family, probably like five, six months later. Five, six uh, months um, post you graduating. Yeah, post. We went on. And, uh, and in that five, six month period, you didn't have like a nine to five. I did not. And my, my girlfriend at the time, who I was with for three-ish years, was like kind of like, okay, what are you going to do? Um, and then I started kind of seeing her judge the path that I wanted to take. And sure. my path was the entrepreneur path. And then I kept getting these women in my life that were like, oh, like you got to go take, like, why don't you just go work for your uncle and do pharmaceutical sales and make 150 grand a year? And I was like, because I would rather blast my head off and do that. That's not what I want to do. So, so you get the call uh, from Will six months later. And he's like, I'm working for this, uh, this lighting company, this energy efficient lighting company. And they need someone lead certified, uh, lead, L-E-E-D, leadership and energy and environmental design. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how to build an Ikea desk, let alone know about fucking plumbing and irrigation systems. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yo, this is like this this is when eco-friendly stuff was like super booming. And he's like, yo, you would be like one of the youngest people in the whole world that are lead certified. Like you're gonna make good money. Like you should do it and you can move out here. Like, it'll be like, it'll be like old times in college. He was like my wingman. I did so bad in school. I was like, you know what? Let me see if I can pass this test. I studied for, don't quote me, like three, four months to take this test. And I forgot what you needed to get. Maybe you need to get like an 80 out of hundred. I go, I fail miserably. And you had to wait three months each time. So then I study again take it again. And then I get like a 78. I fail again. I'm like, what the fuck? Then I wait again and I take it a third time. And then I finally pass. Next day I call him like, yo, I passed the test. So then I fly out there um, and I sign 
with this company, with this guy that Will, walk, Will works for. It's like a four or five person company, um, very digitally native into like SEO. And this is like, I don't know, 2010 maybe. And I signed this lease, maybe overextended myself a bit. And um, I have no money at this time because I went through my whole entire nest egg and I was studying for this test for like almost a fucking year. <laughs> and I'm like writing these articles. They're leveraging Mark Mastandrea, comma, L-E-E-D, certified AP, whatever it was. And I remember going in one day, it was maybe a week into the job. The guy was like, I'm going to let you go. I was like, what do you mean you're going to let me go? He's this like, is one week into the job. One week into the job. I moved to California. I'm the guy that moved from New York to California, the cool guy moving to California. I'm flexing. I got my new apartment. I'm living in Hollywood. And um, he's like, yeah, I'm going to let you go. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I don't need you anymore. He's like, I thought I need you, but I don't need you. So obviously I wanted to punch that guy in the face, but I was like, okay. So then I really kind of started learning the hard realities. And that's when the shit started. So now I'm broke with no job with rent. And I go on Craigslist and I find this company, um, uh, a home remodeling company that had some pretty dicey reviews. I go in, interview by this, this guy named Avi, this Israeli guy who was like mm -hmm. an salesman selling eco-friendly windows and lighting. And he's like, oh, you're lead certified, blah, blah, blah. He's like, okay, listen, man. It was like boiler room. He went outside. He's like, you see that Porsche? He's like, I made this Porsche in 18 months. He's like, you're going to kill it here. And I was like, okay, I'm loving this. Awesome. He's like, but it's no salary, all commission. What was the product? In, in California, very, uh, a lot of the houses are made with something called stucco. Yeah, my house is made of stucco. There you go. And it was like an energy efficient coating. And then you'd have to crack some, yeah. make break even analysis to sell them. And listen to this job. This is another job that was, oh my God, this one was game changer for me. Is... They would give you shitty leads and I would literally be going from Beverly Hills to Compton to the Inland Empire. I had my little piece of shit Civic wearing a shirt and tie and you drive 60 miles, 70 miles, you'd knock on the door and there'd be days where I'd drive literally 250 miles cumulatively and no one would, would open the door. And what you got to do is you had to knock on the door and then I, they had this whole sales system. You would just break people down. It's called form, family, occupation, recreation, money. And I was further optimizing my skills on how to understand people. I mean, I would literally go to the hood in Compton. And then I would go to a $15 million mansion in Beverly Hills. I did that for about a year. And it was just an up and down ride where there'd be three months I'd make $0. And I'd literally be like sitting on my, my, my doorstep with my five other roommates. And I'd be like, fuck, like, what am I doing with my life? And then I would go close $120,000 worth of stuff. And then I'd be rich, still not understanding taxes and 1099s. We'll get into that later. But, and then I was like, okay, uh, I'm going nowhere in life. So then I'm like, okay, I'm going to move home. So you're what? You're about what? 25 now? Nah, I'm like 23-ish. So that happened. And I like went to California. I like lost some weight. I was in better shape, a whole different energy. And then I almost got reclouded back in that world of bullshit to go into like corporate but I was like, nah, man, I'm going to do this entrepreneurship shit. It's time now. So then I was, my two roommates in college, which, you know, uh, Chaffee and, and uh, Jarrett were, were DJs and they would DJ every single night in the house. And I became really familiar with like weird niches of music and DJing. And I loved it. And I had this idea to start uh, a DJ league. It was called the world DJ league, where the DJs were the players, the management companies were the teams, the venues were the stadiums. And I basically put together a business plan and my little brother in our fraternity, which, you know, Dan Oaken mm -hmm. introduced me to this rich kid 
that was super plugged, went to UPenn. I don't, I don't want to say his name. And he's like, yo, you, this guy would be the perfect partner for you. We partner up and we're literally working on this business plan and understanding music licensing and ASCAP and CSAC. I know so much. You're, you're in New York at the time? I'm living at home with my parents. Back and in New York. Yeah. And, this is, and this is a rich kid that's living in North Jersey. My sister had an apartment because she went to NYU. So I'd be at home in Long Island, sleeping on my sister's couch uh, in her New York City place. And then I'd also be sleeping on the couch of my buddy's place in North Jersey, who's my business partner. So we're working on this for like nine months. This thing's going to be the biggest thing ever. He was a big vision guy too. And again, I'm running out of money. We end up securing $500,000 from a VC firm, a guy that actually reached out to me like three months ago, ironically enough. Uh, and he signed an LOI, which for those listening is a, is a letter of intent. How, but how, how did he, how did you get to him or how did he get to you? All through, all of the financial connections were through my business partner, whose father is a very, very well-known finance guy. Okay. So this guy signs the LOI, we're excited. Um, so you obviously, you, you, pit, you had to pitch him at first and he bought into it. Yes. And then without getting into too much detail, I started noticing some things in my, in my partner and I'm staying at his place while he leaves to go snowing for the weekend. And then I get a call that he passed away and he died. I get a call on Monday night. Wow. Without, without explanation, my business partner is dead. So I'm like all types of fucked up because I'm literally in the grind with this guy, like just learning so much having fun. Um, and again, I don't want to get into too much detail, but he passed away. Very rough patch for me. Two weeks later, I find out after the funeral that the guys that were going to give us money retracted the LOI because mm-hmm. ultimately his father's probably relationships played a big part in it. Mm-hmm. So then I was just kind of uh, fucked up for a bit, to be honest with you. Broke, lost, living at home, uh, the loser that was dominating his whole life until he was 21 and then goes to New York to California, fails, comebacks, fails again. So I'm a failure. And then my buddy who I've known since I'm four years old hit me up who wanted to start a mixed martial arts clothing company. And he knew I had a background in apparel from starting my own clothing company in college. Mm-hmm. I mean, by background, I mean like knowing about screen printing, digital printing, like super simple shit. Now looking back, the next couple, I want to kind of fast forward to to get to the good stuff, but Long story short, we raised a little bit of money. It was a great ride. We had a team of four, did a couple hundred grand in sales per year for a couple of years. Um, ended up, he's still trying to revive it to this day. It's crazy. We ended up having a comic book um, who the co-writer was Kevin Eastman, who's the co-founder of the Ninja Turtles. We had a graphic mm-hmm. novel from Barnes and Noble. And then it kind of just kind of stayed there. And it's just kind of like a sitting IP that he's literally trying to revive like till this day is hysterical. But through that is where I had two sales reps who blew up the mixed martial arts clothing company tap out. I'm at a trade show maybe eight years ago and they showed me on their, on their, their, on their iPad. They're like, yo, we had this idea to make a premium hat company. He's like, you know, for socks, there was just like regular bullshit socks and then stance came, you know, for jeans, there was Lee jeans and Levi jeans. And then like true religion came. I was like, wow, like this kind of makes sense. So then I was like kind of phasing out of the MMA clothing company. And they're like, yo, this thing is going to crush it. Like, we want you to be our number three. Like you're, you know, 27 years old. You're just like a hustler. They wanted me. So then I ended up partnering with those guys. The name of that company is Melon for those people listening who has in the last eight or nine years made a unbelievable 
turnaround of events that they are now, um, you know, doing well in the eight figures in revenue, omni-channel, crushing it. And through that process, I was with Mellon, um, the hack company. I mean, I lived on a tour bus for four months, traveled to 40 states, 175 retailers. I learned about retail then and buying. Just really like, I got my MBA in retail and branding and marketing with Mellon. Um, I was the CMO. I did sales. We were in Bloomy, Zoomies, uh, Bloomingdale, Zoomies, Nordstrom, a bunch of lids. And then I started kind of like getting into the apparel space and understanding more about that. And now we're going to get to Iconic. In that process, I was in Boston at a store called Laced. And long story short, I met a kid who was a tattoo artist. And the tattoo artist, TJ Bransfield, was like, yo, I want to become a painter. And he knew that I had a lot of celebrity connections. At that point, I was hanging out with Rob Kardashian a lot. So he yeah, I remember that. He made a painting of Rob Kardashian. I gave it to Rob. Rob posted on Instagram. This kid's Instagram blew up. He got all these emails and he's like, bro, I don't know how to answer these emails. Can you answer them? So I answer them and then- So you essentially became his agent. I sold a piece of art the first day for $1,000. I brought him from a tattoo artist. I've never sold a piece of art. So by the time I left him, you know, doing hundreds of thousand dollars in revenue with $20,000 pieces, celebrity clientele, Kevin Hart, Megan Trainer, uh, Scott Disick, Jordan Clarkson now is a good one to say, sixth man of the year. Through that, I realized nobody could afford the art. So I was like, okay, let's start a limited. What, what year is this? This is 2015, 20, 2015, 2016. Had you met Jeff yet? Jeff was the graphic designer for the hat company, Melon. And Jeff, for people listening, is my business partner who's an alien from another planet. He's the greatest designer of all time. Psycho work ethic, great ideas, great execution. He's arguably, you could, you could make the argument that he's the top digital, one of the top digital artists in the world, right? I make that argument. He gets a little upset when I say that. But um, I think over time, it'll be, it'll be a fact that he'll be the best. That's one of my life goals is to make sure it's known he's the best. But I think, you know, you can look at some digital artists that sell NFTs for a lot of money. For him, he's also very commercially viable. Like he works with Nike, Adidas, Jordan. Yeah. Um, let me finish. And for, the, and for those that are listening, his Instagram feed is great. He's at Cole, right? At C-O-L-E. He's, yeah. um, he's a super talented guy. So you, you met Jeff at Mellon. He was doing digital artwork for them. What was it like freelance or he was like an actual employee? Oh, he was freelance for the, comp- the mixed martial arts clothing company before that. I had known him already for a long time. Okay. Just, I don't want to forget this. So was this, was this the only guy that you were working with for in terms of being an agent? Yes. And I started making more money with him than I was making with the hat company. And the big, the big, big aha moment was no one could afford the art. I dropped a limited time print for 48 hours to sell as many pieces as possible, made 20 grand in two days. And then I was like, oh, oh wow, there's a hole in the affordable art market. And I knew okay. I kind of tried like doing some testing things with that artist I was managing at the time, but he just didn't have just the juice that Jeff has. And Jeff is really good at trend spotting. So he realized everybody was posting motivational quotes, pop culture, memes, photography, and we were broke living in Carlsbad together. Working so he was your roommate? He was my roommate working for Mellon with me. He had all of these canvases in our little shitty apartment. And I own these big Instagram accounts. So I was like, yo, let's just start like drop shipping from this random canvas company, who's now our business partner, ironically enough. And then we just started like bartering art in 2016 and making $1,000 here and there. Black Friday, I think we made 15 grand. We thought we were rich. <laughs> and then... February 27th of 2017, we went from Squarespace to Shopify. March 1st, we did our first Facebook ad. Had you formed, had you formed an LLC yet with him? We did 3 to $4 million in revenue. 
and Squarespace needed an EIN number. So we use my yeah. own personal LLC. So hypothetically, I own the whole company for the first four million. So that should kind of give everybody a uh, an idea of the, like the. What was the company? Company. what was the company called though? Mark Brazil LLC, but <laughs> the name no, of the company- like so people when people no, no, are buying no. art. No, it was oh, called okay. it was called Iconic. Um, okay. It was uh, shopiconic.com and it was shopiconic at gmail.com. That was got it, got that, it. That was me. Um, but yeah, I remember to this day. Obviously, I'm close with Jeff's family now, but you know, Jeff comes from a fairly conservative Jewish family, and they're like, you know, who is this guy? Like, do you have paperwork signed? I was like, father-in-law is a lawyer. I, I mean, I ultimately think to this day. I remember when we signed the deal, me and Jeff were 50-50 partners. I remember his friends being that he was the artist and I was the quote-unquote manager. Usually in that situation, the manager gets 20%. So his friends were like, yo, what are you doing giving this guy 50-50? You're an idiot. And then my friends were like, bro, you own the business. He's just an artist. He's a graphic designer. Just mm-hmm. pay fucking 30 grand a year. What are you doing? And I was like, nah, that's not how it is. Because me and him I had a mutual, we were in the same spot of talented, hardworking, savage individuals that were underutilized, underincentivized for a while. So then it was like this perfect combination of two dudes with complementary skill sets that trusted each other. So so the four the four million happens. And the four million happened part time. We were working five AM to eight AM and then six PM to our eyes closed. Um, basically long story short, me and him were grinding around the clock. We were the whole company. So like shopiconic at gmail.com was me. I was customer service. That was Mark you were talking to. I'd be calling the customers. Me and Jeff didn't even have a pr- real production partner. So we had to go on those sites where you upload the artwork. So it would literally take us for every order. We'd have to manually input it. We'd be behind two weeks in orders. We would have a contest with a stopwatch on who could do the orders faster. I'd be doing customer service. He'd be doing design. And then I'd be like, I do the net 50. And then I would go to sleep and then he would do 50. And then every single day we would go on and off. I mean, there should literally be a fucking movie when this is all said and done in this company. But it was just like, I remember we had this fucking little stupid beanbag and this Fisher Price basketball hoop. He'd be sitting there on the beanbag thinking of ideas and I'd be doing customer service. And then we'd fucking swap. Man, I remember those days. And you, and you still were technically employed by the hat company. I was employed by this MBA blanket company. Oh. I, I had left the hat company. I pride myself, Jeff, as well, in like understanding talent. To think that someone couldn't see the talent in Jeff, I saw it. So I don't know what to say to these other people, but like people just don't understand that from a core DNA perspective that like if you have the hard work and the mentality and then you're actually also talented, I knew what he had and just our our DNA, we had the same core DNA, but like we're completely different humans. So it just was like the perfect situation for both of us. I assume after a couple million dollars in revenue, you're like, okay, we're, we're full time now. This is gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna go for this. Yeah. So Jeff's a bit more conservative than me. We were very sales heavy on one specific skew. So Jeff um, didn't want to leave until it became a quote unquote real business, and we had, you know, a bunch of skews that were selling. So once we started to kind of, you know, the sales were amortized over a bunch of skews, uh, we were like, okay, it's time to go all in. And like, I remember vividly us telling our other guy who was literally asleep at the wheel in this other company. We're like, yo, we're out, bro. And then that door shut. And then it was just, we work hard now. I think we work different. Back then it was just, I just, I can't even explain to people out there. Like you really got to cherish those moments in the beginning. There's just so much beauty in the beginning. Cause it was literally me, him, 
his 15 year old brother was helping us process orders. We were, we were bartering with him, Jeff's shoes. It was so funny. The, the year that you went all in was what year? I'd say probably top of 18 or the end of 17. Cause I saw you, I don't know if you remember at the end of 17 at Christmas, my wife was pregnant with my first son, Dylan. This was the end of, this had to be the end of 2017. We remember I was doing, I did a Seattle oh, yeah, I, LA trip. We went to the basketball game, you took <laughs> yeah. us for dinner. And I remember us having dinner and iconic was like, now it was your whole life. And I obviously being very inquisitive about what you were doing, like I am now, you were giving me the rundown. And I don't know if you know this, but my wife, cause my wife didn't know you. She's like, she who got, is this psycho? She got a little bit of the wrong impression of you, right? She's like, is he like in live in reality? Because he's saying a lot of what's going to, what he thinks is going to happen with his business and what he's got in motion. You know, was he exaggerating at all? Like I was like, no, no, no. Everything that Mark told you is true. Just so you know, yeah. I just said, just so you know, Mark and everything that's happened with him right now, and what he's going to be doing in the next year. I promise you was going to all, all come to fruition. Now there were certain things. I won't say what they were that you said you were, you had in place. And then when they happened like six months later, a year later, or even after that, I would say to my wife, see, I told you. Like, because you, you can <laughs> don't, imagine. Don't, don't get me in, involved with you and your wife's conversations. I'm not No, talking. no, because because you can imagine how many people, because I was starting to explain to her that you weren't talking a big game. You were just telling me what was going on. And no, no, because, no. No, no, because I was talking a big game. That's 48 well, laws of power. But you weren't, you weren't talking. Interaction a, with boldness. You weren't, yeah. you weren't trying to impress us. You were just literally telling us what was going on. Whereas a lot of people could spit out a lot of the stuff that you were saying and none of it would ever come to fruition. And what I explained to her and explained to her after that is like, I knew everything that you were saying you were going to do was going to get done. I just knew it. And we went, remember we went to the Laker game. I remember sitting next to you at the Laker game. I don't know if you remember this and you were getting to the iconic Instagram account. And I, I don't even know if I was on Instagram then you, you were, an, you see, you, you looked at me and you were answering every single person that was commenting on the, on the, on the, on the page or whatever. I said to you, bro, like, you're like, yo, I don't care who it is, whoever's commenting, buying, asking questions, I respond to them immediately. It doesn't matter who they are. And I remember you sitting there throughout the game, barely watching the game because you were talking to people interested in the brand and trying to understand what you were doing. I think that is like the complete antithesis of the whole brand. It's like, I think people need to understand that, you know, they always say like you meet like a couple of people that, that you're going to love in your life, like in, in, in the business world you're gonna have a couple opportunities. And when those opportunities come, you gotta fucking pounce on them. I mean, if you look at the market now, we created this affordable canvas market and there's tons of competitors. Yeah, I get, I, get them, I get them advertising to me on Instagram. If we didn't go as fast as we went in the beginning, then we wouldn't have built the lead that we built. And then, you know, for the, for the marketers out there, when you build the lead and you build brands, there's something called CAC, which is cost to acquire a customer. And when the CAC goes up, when Facebook is driving the CAC up, the people at the brand are going to survive. And, and the, the way to build brand is through things like I did in the beginning. I would be calling the customers. I called tons of customers. Yeah. We have a, a web series episode where I called. I remember your first, one of your first hundred customers, right? Yeah. I would call them, tell them I love them. Yeah. yeah I, remember I, think, that. I think the other thing too is I think the one thing that I can unequivocally say is like I left the hack company because they were going down the, the extreme sports category from a marketing perspective. Like we signed Ryan Sheckler and I didn't care. And I was like, okay, I can't sell this product because it's not authentic to me. So like, as far as what I was saying at that dinner to your wife, like, dude, I'm never going to sell anything my whole entire life that I don't believe in. Yeah. I get 
crazy opportunities thrown my way all the time. If I don't fuck with it, then I'm not selling it. So like everything that I said then, um, I meant it, I believed it. And I think with me- It came true. A lot of what is what I always thought was special about Iconic was how you utilized your relationships to help build the brand, where you made connections with great companies, a lot of, a lot of famous people helped got involved in the brand as well. Was that like, was that part of the plan? Like to utilize or to, to go after what I guess, quote unquote influencers or, you know, cause you were in LA, you were in, you were in the entertainment capital of the world. Was that like an active or methodical process in, in helping use your relationships to build the brand? That is a methodical life process that I'm going to instill in the human that I reproduce with my future wife from when he's four years old. It's about relationships and giving value first. I just always was the guy that knew the people that get people to things that would connect people. I'd connect people and not ask for finders fees. Like I was always just give, 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 give. It's Gary Vaynerchuk 101, give, 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 give. And then I have all of these favors that I put out there. When am I going to cash in? When is it going to make sense for me to cash in? And then now, obviously, I was incentivized to leverage those in cash in during this business. And then understanding how to structure deals that they were mutually beneficial. And that just became the snowball for me to start these new relationships where like I was in control now. I was part of these companies where I wasn't in control. I wanted to do something. They wanted to do it another way. So I had seen so much stuff done the wrong way that by like process of elimination, I knew how to do it the right way. If you just do right by people and you make realistic asks, like, you know me, I'm not afraid to fucking ask at all. So I wasn't afraid to ask. And I just, I went for the jugular and with everything, I was very, very strategic in how I leveraged things where we got one license and we beat their 20 year poster license CQ1. So what did I do? I leveraged that to then go get the NBA. The NBA was the blue chip name. Then I had one blue chip. I used that blue chip yep, yep. to get the other one. So like we've, I think, especially lately, we've really formulated kind of like, I joked to my team around like iconic 6.0 kind of like how we're going to take this thing eventually to in some way, shape or form the finish line. You really need to think 10 steps ahead. I knew when I had the MBA license with the company before I developed a relationship with this girl that her best friend I knew from two companies ago's mom. And I got her two internships with two different DJ companies. So then I tapped into that. She knew I was a good guy. Then I went to dinner with her mom, who's a licensing OG. And then I just knew that if I ever wanted the NBA license, it was theirs for the taking. And then what did I do? I crushed it with Muhammad Ali first. And then I just said, hello to my NBA contact. We got coffee. And then she came to me and wanted to give it to us. And now we've created an amazing business with the NBA, which by the way, we have a fucking explosive MBA license, uh, MBA announcement coming soon, which I cannot wait. Biggest announcement, I think, in company history is coming within the next 30 days. But yeah, man, it's just about understanding and knowing people, really. Iconic at, at the end of 27, 2018, simply was affordable artwork company, affordable artwork that you could buy on the internet. How would you describe Iconic now? So we made a very hard line in the sand where... That bio that you read in the beginning, I got I to gotta scrape that off LinkedIn or wherever you got it from. We got we to gotta fix that up. <laughs> but for us, it's really just like the core focus of the company is, is to inspire and motivate through storytelling. And for us, originally it was art and we wanted to go narrow and deep on art and go past the motivational, inspirational art and get into more categories of art, whether it be you know, abstract art or different product mediums for art. 
Mm -hmm. What we found out, which was more authentic to us and what we knew there was bigger upside is we don't want to own the art category. We want to own the emotion of motivation and inspiration and then be able to extend into other product categories. So our kind of plan moving forward is really from a macro perspective, two different things, a more products. So you're going to see the same DNA messaging emotion on other products. And then B we're going on channel. Um, so we're going to be going into brick and mortar retail. We're going to be doing licensing deals. So we're going to go from going only on our website, canvas only to enormous expansion. My two main goals right now is product expansion, omni-channel distribution expansion, and then is building the team. You mentioned the finish line before. Do you know what in your mind, what the finish line is, or do you think you'll just know when it happens that it's happened? I say it all the time. Like, ironically enough, we just got a bunch of uh, press and I've been talking to a lot of our growth equity guys. And like, I don't know if it's strategic or not, but I just say it, I say it how it is. Like, I think we suck right now. I think we've done nothing. I think we're just scratching the surface. So like for me, from like an acquisition or a growth equity perspective, I would never take in money at where we're at right now. If you look at our, you know, from a very straightforward P&L perspective, like, because I know where we're going to be in 18 months with new product mediums and omni-channel. So um, obviously the price would have to be right. I love what we're doing. Jeff loves what we're doing. This is something that will be more like probably a growth equity play. And then me and Jeff doing less of the random bullshit and staying more of a specialist in what we're super passionate about and talented. Like, I just want Jeff to be creating all day, but he's doing some managerial shit. And then ultimately, I truly do inherently care a lot about my team. I really, really do care about my team. And like, there's now two people and now the next couple are gonna be leaving situations to basically take a bet on myself, Jeff, the company. So like now I feel like I'm indebted to basically prove them right. Just like I'm indebted to people like you that believed in me since the beginning. So I need to get this thing into a, a way bigger place. And again, people change, life change, your motives change. Right now I'm mid thirties, I'm single, I'm happy. Uh, we're making money. So I don't have an end goal. I just, I know what the next five steps are. Looking back on, I guess the last 10 years, is there anything you wish you could have done differently? 100%. The whole game is about one thing and one thing only, knowledge. There is always a spot in the room for the smart guy, unequivocally. Even if they fucking hate you, if you're smart, some people will keep you around because you're so fucking mm. smart. So my thing is, I wish I would have gotten smarter, faster, and I would have been working for free. Like it was great. I was on the job from these companies. Like the, the MMA clothing company was great. I learned, I ran it and I learned directly. Melon was great. I wasn't running it, but I learned directly. But like, how great would it be if I wanted to become a leader and I'm 21 years old? Like, if I was your executive assistant, Alex, and I wanted to become a leader and a CEO, I say this all the time. It sounds arrogant. I don't give a shit. I should be paying you for that. Working for you for how to become a leader of an organization is better than going to college. So the only thing I regret is like, again, my unborn children will work for Alex Sobel. They will mop the fucking floors for Millennial Alliance, whatever you call your company. They're going <laughs> to mop the, They're going to mop the floors for you. They're going to mop the floors for Gary. They're going to, they're literally going to eat shit to the smartest people that I know in my network. And they're just going to get as smart as possible, as fast as possible, be humble and give value. My whole entire theme in my whole life, whether it be soccer, whether it be business, I'm still single. My wife, I'm late there too. 
I always show up late. Not really. Uh, I'm I'm happy right now. I don't think there's no I don't think there's such a thing with late when it comes to that. I always show up late to the game, but I win. It doesn't matter if you're winning in the third quarter. It matters if you win the game. So for me, I just wish that I would have been playing for different teams in the first quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter. Like mm. the, the NBA blanket company, like I didn't learn shit from the guy I was working with. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like now, like I just hired this new guy that's like putting me on game. I can't wait. He officially starts on the 28th. I can't wait for him to fuck me up and just say, you're doing this wrong. We should do this, 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 and this. Like that's what gets me really excited, getting smarter and understanding things more. And I truly do believe that we've built a team that's very uh, curious, um, very growth oriented. It's rounding up to become something really special. You met, you mentioned, we're, we're going to wrap up soon, but you mentioned something that Gary, who I know obviously is a small investor and iconic, he, he taught, he's talked a lot about eating shit and I agree with him. And I, and you mentioned it, you've mentioned it to me for years. I just, people, especially in business, eating shit is like a very, very huge part of it. And I try to explain to people that ask me about that. When I talk about eating shit, like it doesn't mean you're a pushover, but like, it's, it's kind of unexplainable to talk about someone who's good at eating shit, but it's also good at seeing it, it's like you eat shit because you care more about where you're going to go than any personal pride or anything. Can you just explain when you talk about eating shit, how do you define that? I mean, it's eat shit or die. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's how the game goes. It's really, you need to do whatever is necessary or the company will go under. So it's, somebody's got to do it. I mean, I don't know how else to answer that. Like yeah. I can't explain to you, like I joke all the time with Jeff, like you think that I want to be talking to our accountants and lawyers all the time? Fuck no. I don't want to be talking yeah. to either of them. I love my lawyer. Shout out Goody. But I don't want to be talking to them. And that's where I'm talking about potentially like phases down the line. Like that's not yeah. where I want to live. But like, I think we live in a world now where people are way too unrealistic and like, you're not going to have a job where you love doing everything. And I think that you know, a large percentage of my team is just like, they have that mentality where like, they're eating a little bit of shit, but they see the bigger vision and they're learning and they see upside. So it's one thing to eat shit. It's another thing to eat shit to see where this is going. And that goes back to the conversation as being a leader that we had with your wife in, in LA. You don't have a, a, a leader that has a vision on where this shit's going, then no one's going to fucking follow that, that's what the reality of the situation is. So like, and I think we have a really interesting situation where I'm kind of the loud guy and then Jeff is like the more quiet guy. And I think we just, we just have like a really, really good balance that we have like this kind of cohesive vision together. So yeah, you got to eat shit. I mean, people- I agree. Think you I guys, totally agree. You can't I think that's the most, most important thing. I know you got, I know you got your personal trainer waiting for you. Mark, brother, we talk every few weeks. I'm really thankful that you did this podcast again. It's different. You know, you know me, I'm a little bit of a, we, we talk a lot about business and entrepreneurship and leadership on the podcast. I tend to gravitate to the people that come into our world from the, the political side, um, just because I find that I find that world somewhat interesting. But I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today. If you could bet on people. If like like you could on a stock, I'd bet I'd bet on you every hey. single every single day of the week, brother. I'm just a big fan, and it's impressive to see what you've done and what you're what you're gonna do. I don't a lot of what you're doing is to me is foreign language. You and you and Jeff have built something really special, and um, I wanted to give our listeners if they didn't know much about Iconic, we'll take an active interest in it now. 
Um, I wanted to give him a sense of who you were and what you've done and the vision that you have going forward. So congratulations on all your success, brother. And um, I miss you. I miss you too. I appreciate the kind words. And um, yeah, I'm excited that you're doing this podcast thing. I think that you're speaking to an interesting lane and um, I'm going to listen during my workout to one of your other ones. So in a couple of years, in a couple, or maybe not in a couple of years, maybe sooner than that, we'll do a part two. Last thing, um, my parting words, tell your wife that this interview is going to age so fucking well. And, <laughs> and then I'm literally just getting started and just watch. <laughs> right. I'll, let, I'll let her know. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to the millennium live podcast, new episodes every Monday. 